Coming up this week on Amazing But True, we pay our respects to longtime New York Post sports photographer and someone I was honored to call a friend, Anthony Causey, after he passed away Sunday due to coronavirus. The Post's Ken Davidoff and fellow photographer Gemini Keys dropped by to share some memories of their colleague and friend. We also have a dynamic duo of guests. First off, the newest member of Twitter and radio voice of the Mets, the great Howie Rose, joins us. We also have a conversation with a 1986 World Series champion, a Mets Hall of Famer, and a great guy. The legendary Doc Gooden drops by. All that is next on Amazing But True from the New York Post. Crazy, yo. Mets take the field. So amazing. Amazing but true. Orange and blue. So amazing. Here's the pitch. New York Post. It's out of here. We got you. And now, here they are. Brooklyn's own number 27. The F-I-double-G-I-E, Nelson Figueroa. Astoria's finest, number 69, it's Jay Swizzy, Jake Brown. Welcome to Amazing But True New York Mets podcast the New York Post. Jake Brown here alongside my co-host Nelson Figueroa. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. Uh, we got a lot to get into today on a sad edition of the show, but we do have some good guests. Ken Davidoff, Gemini Keys, Howie Rose, and Dwight Gooden all join us. But we have to start off, Figgy, with the tragic passing of Anthony Causey. 26 years as a New York Post sports photographer. He was just 48 years old. He leaves behind his wife, Romina, his daughter, Mia, and his son, John. And, you know, we'll have Ken Davidoff and Gemini Keys, you know, share their memories of their friend and their colleague and their co but I want you to talk about your memories with him. And I know you have a text from a family member that talked about him as well. Yeah. Um, you know, first off, thoughts and prayers go out to the family, Romina, me and John, he will definitely be missed. Uh, he was just a, one of those larger than life characters. You always saw him at sporting events, even if it wasn't like for me, it was always Mets games. And then I would go to the Nets games and there he is on the floor. And then you go Giants games. There he is uh, on the sidelines. He was always right there and always finding a way to get the perfect shot and if it wasn't the perfect shot he continued to take shots until he found the perfect shot you know my relationship with him over the years had grown and it's it's been one of those things where he was even supposed to be uh, the photographer at my daughter's sweet 16 if he could have gotten off that weekend uh, late in january he was going to be the photographer and i i was blessed to even think about uh the opportunity to have him as a photographer but anthony when uh we first met uh, in 2008. Uh, he came up to me and he told, introduced himself. He's the New York Post sports photographer and he needed to take pictures of me. And he asked if I had my t-shirts from 9-11 that I had designed. And I said, I don't have them with me here, but I can have them sent down. So I had them express mailed. And a couple of days later, we went to take pictures in them. So I took the picture. And right before we started taking the picture, he's like, you went to uh, Mark Twain Junior High School, didn't you? And I said, yeah, I, I did. And he goes, you remember Maria Causey? I go, oh my God, Maria Causey. I go, she was like one of the hottest girls in school. And he goes, yeah, that's my sister. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, I said, you know, we, my cousin was really good friends with her. I go, we, we've always been good friends. And he just started laughing. He goes, I'll tell her you said hello. And um, he had reached out to her. And, and that was kind of like our, that's him. That's Brooklyn in him of, you know, a little, a test there just to nudge me and, and see where I was at. But he was uh, so Brooklyn. Um, he was hard on his sleeve. And at the same time, he was someone who, uh, you know, always kept that Brooklyn edge to him and the, the Italian side of him with the, always trying to give me a new recipe 
restaurant to try out. But I uh, spoke with his sister. We exchanged messages this morning. And I just wanted to read a message I got from her. Basically expresses the sentiment of the whole family. Maria says, my heart is shattered and we will never be the same without him. He was one of a kind and I feel as though a part of me is missing. I always knew our family, felt his love, kindness, generosity, and loyalty. But I never knew the world felt the same way about him as we did. Thank you so much. And it's true. I mean, you see the outpouring of love that you're getting from all different facets of the sports world, whether it's athletes, organizations who appreciated this man's work and his professionalism. You know, you always saw him there with uh, 50 pounds of gear. Uh, ready to um, switch cameras at a moment's notice. And I, I'm really happy that he got to see technology that uh, with the memory cards, because I think they should make a cozy bite because he, terabytes didn't cover how many pictures this guy would take. So he uh, always was there snapping away and had the opportunity to get the perfect shot each and every time. Our back pages, you know, speak volumes uh, for his his incredible work that he's had over the years. That was great, Figgy. And, you know, I wish I knew him. You know, I, I think I saw him a few times when I covered a couple of Mets games and you see, see those guys around, but you don't know anything about him. Um, and it's really incredible, the support that we've heard. And we'll talk in a minute with Ken Davidoff and Gemini Keys about it, who really also shed some light on just the tremendous guy that he was and photographer. I mean, think about it, Figgy. When he started is when, like, the New York sports phenomenon was really in its heyday. The Yankees would go on to win four titles. The Knicks were a good team. Remember those days? It seems like light years ago when, when he was there. That's that's when the Knicks went to the finals, 99. Uh, the Mets made the World Series, 2000. The Giants made the Super Bowl. The Jets were a pretty good team. So he was there at the, high, the biggest moments to this year with the Eli photo with his daughter and the the Mariano photo the Jeter photo the the Mello and Kobe I mean all of his photos have been seen by everyone on whether it was in the paper or on the front page of the paper and he will truly be missed so our thoughts our prayers our condolences and Figgy we will tweet out the GoFundMe page for him which will all go to his family the hard part for me Figgy before we hand it off is the thinking about his family not getting to say the true goodbye. You know, when someone passes, you're usually there by their side, uh, unless it's obviously something tragic, a car accident or something, but it's you're there by their side. You can hold them. You could say goodbye. He was, you know, his wife was there in a hazmat suit, so it's like she, and he was in a coma, so she couldn't say her true final goodbyes to him, and that breaks your heart when you think about the kids and the family, uh, the uncertainty and the fact that if you go near him, uh, this is a, a disease that could spread, so that's, that's a tough part to think about. Yeah, it was really uh, tough to to think about not being able to say their goodbyes. Um, you know, he had gone, uh, been on a ventilator, hadn't been responsive, but that didn't stop people from reaching out. We heard from Gemini Keys before we did our interview that he had been sending him video messages telling him that he was thinking of him and praying for him, hoping that one day he would get a response from him. And it's sad to think that that response will never come. There's just so many people that did pray and, and, and hoped for the best from him. When we heard he was, you know, stable and stable condition, it, we thought that he could pull through. And, um, you know, this virus before it was COVID-19 and coronavirus. And, you know, now this has a face to it. This, this, this now has a name that is very familiar to all of New York and the sports world. And uh, it really hits home for a lot of us. And let's continue to honor him next with Ken Davidoff and Gemini Keys. And joining us now as we continue to honor the passing of Anthony Causey, the longtime New York Post sports photographer, 26 years uh, taking pictures. He's captured many memories. Ken Davidoff of the New York Post baseball columnist. Follow him on Twitter at Ken Davidoff. Now, Ken, you uh, were close with Anthony. You could call him a friend, I would say, and just wanted you to shed some light on uh, your, your memories of him. 
Yeah, I mean, I, look, guys, I'm heartbroken. I mean, it's, it's devastating news. And following it these last few weeks, uh, you know, there was a time where it seemed like he was stabilizing and improving. And then for things to wind up like this, uh, you know, it's, it's just so upsetting. You know, what, what stands out to me about Anthony is just platinum level people skills. I mean, just, just his ability to connect with anybody from any background was extraordinary. And it, I think as talented a technical photographer as he was, I think what really made him elite were those people skills. The things that's a gift for us from Brooklyn is we learned how to assimilate and be able to get into any group. And as a photographer, that's huge because he can kind of warm you up and get that shot that he's looking for, for, for every professional athlete. They got shots done by Anthony that they wouldn't allow other photographers to take. And that's one of the gifts that he definitely had. Ken, can you give us one specific time, especially being down there in Mets camp, everything's so confined and closed in uh, that you guys shared a lot of time together. You have any one moment that stands out? Yeah, that's easy, Figgy. Uh, so Joanna Cespedes, uh, I mean, he loves Anthony and, you know, Ioannis is, he's tricky. He's a tricky guy. He's, he's not, uh, he's not a warm and fuzzy type uh, per se, but I, you can just tell the year 2016, he used to bring a different car into camp every day. You know, at one, one time, so he had this three-wheeler. I'm not good with cars, some kind of three-wheeler. And so Anthony, you know, just says, hey, take me for a ride. And Seth was, okay, come on in. <laughs> you know, and Anthony got this exclusive video of riding in, in Cespedes' three-wheeler. So that planted a seed for me. And then when Cespedes, uh, re-up the next year. He signed the four-year contract that he's finishing out now. I reached out to Anthony and said, hey, you know, do you think Cespedes would be receptive if, if the two of us visited his ranch in Florida and we got, you know, shots of him doing, uh, you know, just, just doing stuff on his ranch? He said, well, let me try. And lo and behold, within the month, uh, we got to his ranch in Vero Beach at that time, Florida, and just a spectacular story and great photos. And Yoannis even put on a cowboy outfit for Anthony. I mean, it was just, it just showed to me the level of trust and faith and respect that Yoannis had for Anthony. And uh, Yoannis sat down with, uh, for an interview with me. And then Anthony spent a good hour just running around the ranch with him, taking all sorts of photos. And I, Anthony was very proud of the work he did uh, for that. I was very proud. And I, I was proud of myself, most of all, for thinking to propose it to Anthony because he was the one who really made it happen. Yeah, we, we're seeing, Ken, just everyone, the output pouring of love from you know from you guys from the writers from players i mean curtis granderson even noah Syndergaard just posted something there's everyone in the community is really gathering around and telling stories about him what was it about him that you know people love so much that made cespita say i love this guy I'm, I'm gonna let him come to my ranch and take pictures what was that one underlying thing about him that made him so loved he had a huge heart he was a naturally generous human being and you know go back to your brooklyn roots he was out of bleeps to give. He, like he didn't care, you, you know, because like he would, like he just didn't put on airs, you know. Mm -hmm. And he, people naturally liked him, but he really like he didn't care if people liked him, you know. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like it was oh, yeah. just it was he was who he was. And there's no so many athletes connected with that. It always, I mean, I was just in awe of his ability to to work with athletes and and just really connect with them. Well, Ken, we appreciate you uh, coming on here for a few minutes. I know it's a tough time to do it. Obviously, our thoughts and prayers are with. With his his two kids, he lives behind his wife, and with friends like you, uh, you and Figgy that he had. So we appreciate you coming on here. You got it, guys. Thanks, Ken. All right, joining us now to also honor the passing of Anthony Causey is a fellow photographer. He's been in the pit with him, Gemini Keys, Keys Cam, the world famous Keys Cam. He's getting 
pictures of everyone's shoes and every player and someone who's he mentored you and I want you keys to kind of talk about you know the mentor that he was to you and you know memories of being in the photo pit with him and working with him oh man Jake first of all thanks thank you guys for thinking of me and having me on your platform to talk about my dear friend Anthony Calvi um first and foremost you know please my thoughts and prayers my condolences go out to his family his beautiful wife Romina and his food beautiful children john and me and like I, I love those I, I love them so please you know let's keep them let's keep them in our thoughts and prayers man anthony man that that was my guy man not only was he my mentor you know my colleague but a very dear friend and when i mean friend guys i don't i don't I'm not throwing that word out loosely okay he's a very dear friend of mine everything that i i know about camera work and my skill set has gotten better it's, it's been under his mentorship okay i've known as the keys cam and you know i i i, I made my name doing you know, the stuff that with the pros around. And Anthony, he was he was the, the guy. Not only was he behind me in the beginning, but in the beginning, he used to doubt it. He used to tell me, bro, that, that's not going to work. You got to do better. He would always challenge me. As the uh, thing started to grow more and more, and he started seeing that it was my name that was associated with it. It was his last year, bro, right before the baseball season started. He, he told me, he was like, I know I told you to, to leave the sneaker stuff alone, but you didn't listen to me, and that was a good thing. And um, he would he would encourage me to, to, to keep doing it and just be, just, just to think outside the box that was always his thing like if you're gonna if you believe in something you gotta do it with all the love and how you you know you have to live that was Anthony he was a great guy, especially like for younger photographers like myself. Like if you saw that you were committed, he took out the time to like to teach you, to help you, whatever it is that you needed, man. That was Anthony. You're gonna hear so many stories about this guy in the, in the coming days, bro. That it's just amazing the stuff that he was behind the scenes that you just have no idea. And all the shots that we that we see on the daily that Anthony has presented for us, man, he's gonna be missed. Yeah, Keys, I I I feel your your pain as well, brother. We we know Anthony a long long time. One thing is, you know, it's a competitive business, right? You're trying to all get some of the same shots and uh, you see him in the pit and he's always got 50 different, you know, pounds of camera equipment hanging from him and he's always looking to get a different angle and he's always doing something. You, you watch him from afar, but it's kind of that appreciation that you have for him. Do you have one story that stands out of one time with him? Well, let me tell you something. All-Star Weekend, when we were in New York, he told me it was my time to shine, okay? And every time we were in the crowd getting photos of, like, LeBron or, like, whoever the All-Star was at that moment, he would look down at the ankles of shoes and say, hey, John, because I asked my name. He would say, John, come over here. And he would just bring me up in the front and just have me right next to him. And he would tell me, do what you got to do. And I would do it, and I would just walk away, and he goes, you get the shot? All right. Go, go do something else. That was Anthony, man. Listen, and if you cross that dude, Biggie, I know you know this. If you were a guy that had the audacity to try to cross, cross Anthony Calvi, my man, he could make your day the worst day ever. <laughs> if you ever cross that man. <laughs> I love Anthony, man. I love him, bro. Like, and you know, Anthony from Brooklyn, bro. You know, say like he's a real Brooklyn dude, man. You know, Saturday Night Live type of dude. You know, every Saturday Night Fever. That was Anthony, you know, the karate kid, man. I told him the same. I said the same thing. I posted that. I posted how he's a New York, he's a Brooklyn guy through and through, right? He love you to death, but at the same time, you cross him, he's gonna let you know. So that's the beauty you know, of Anthony. Let me tell you something. When you think about Brooklyn, <laughs> Anthony Cowsey is Brooklyn, man. 
It's not going to be the same. At Gemini Keys on Instagram. Hey, Keys, uh, we really appreciate you, you know, shedding a couple of memories. I thought it was really cool to kind of, you know, a guy who was in the in the battle, I don't even know the word for it, in the battlefield, in the photo pit with him, competition, uh, and someone that, you know, you really respect and love, and I think it was good to get your perspective. So uh, thanks for stopping by, and, you know, thoughts and prayers, you know, to you uh, dealing with the loss of a dear friend. Thank you, my brother. You know what? There's never a competition when we're, on, when we're on the battlefield. We're all for each other, so it was never like that. But, yeah, I know what you mean, guys. Thank you for having me, man. And uh, please, you guys be safe, man. Real out there. And joining us now is the radio voice of the Mets. You hear him. Used to be on WFAN, used to be on WOR, now on WCBS. And he's formerly the TV voice on Fox Sports New York. Um, He's also in the National Jewish Sports Hall of Fame and the New York Baseball Hall of Fame. It's the great Howie Rose. Howie, welcome to Amazing But True, and also welcome to Twitter. Yeah, it's quite the experience, isn't it? I mean, this is fun enough going on with you and welcome. Being on Twitter now, that is a life-altering experience. And you're now a must-follow, at Howie Rose 3, make sure. And I know you told Figgy you want us to plug it. We're like, that's the first thing we wanted to do because I think a lot of people were waiting for you to you know, be on Twitter. I think the, the radio voice of the Mets has to be on Twitter. Gary Cohen is not yet, I don't believe, so he's, he's next Oh, no, he's line. not. Well, you see, he was as reluctant as I always was, but global pandemic, I got nothing else to do except try to stay healthy so while we're all hunkering down i figured why not go all the way and before we get into twitter we just wanted you to share some words we've been honoring anthony causing his tragic passing so before we get into the fun stuff we wanted you to share your memories of anthony and seeing him around the stadium yeah jake the whole thing is just heartbreaking because here's a guy that was a big puppy dog right i mean he was nice as they came and i've read all the stories just over the last less than 24 hours about all the strangers you would basically take photos of and you wouldn't just take a quick one and it would be a you know project for him for a few minutes until he got it right and i still love that about this business that there are so many people dedicated in every facet of this business to getting it right and i don't think anyone was ever more steadfast in that approach than anthony was he was a delightful person to know and i'm absolutely heartsick over his loss. Yeah, that's really uh, been the sentiments of everyone is just what an uh, amazing guy he was and, and very recognizable there on the sidelines in every venue that he, he was Yeah, everybody knew him. Everybody knew him. Mm-hmm. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, what, we wanted to talk to you, of course, about Twitter. My question is, did Alyssa, your daughter, make you get the Twitter or this is something you wanted to do yourself? No, 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 not at all. I, I've always been curious about it. And Alyssa is a very, very uh, committed tweeter, if you will. And, um, you know, she's, she's drummed up a lot of followers for herself and is what they call, I guess, an influencer now on social media. See, I'm getting all the jargon down. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I believe me, I've been prodded for years. But the reason I held off was very simple. I didn't, and maybe to an extent, still don't trust myself because I know me. I know my sense of humor, whatever that is. And I've always been afraid that, you know, after that second glass of wine after dinner, I'll go, yeah, this, this is funny. I could tweet this. And then the next thing, you know, I'm, I'm done. So I've just, I've come up with the idea that I think every Twitter account should have a breathalyzer attached to it so that, you know, if you blow point whatever it is, then the tweet won't send. Um, That's a good so idea. I'm going to be really careful. And especially during a pandemic, you got to be extra careful because the wine is popping now more than ever. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? I'm, I, yeah. 
I mean, Robert Mondavi can't crush enough grapes to make this thing palatable. <laughs> so have you gotten trolled yet? What, what You were telling us a little story in the beginning uh, before we came on the air about uh, issues you're having already. Nah, you know what? I, I mean, I don't know that I even understand fully what being trolled is because I don't necessarily equate that with somebody taking exception to something. There was a tweet that somebody put out earlier today with one of those nine box kind of questions for you. You could only pick three and the subject was band. So, you know, they had the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, and frankly, you could stop it right there, but they had a bunch of others as well. And somebody tweeted in response to the fact that this band wasn't even included in that box of nine, no steely dance. And I tweeted back, Steely Dan were as overrated as Fernando Martinez was. And so, you know, so there you go. Yeah, yeah. So I got a reaction to that. And uh, your daughter, Alyssa Rose, is at Alyssa Rose. She's at 24,000. You're close to 22. So the competition is heating up. And I know she's a little worried that you're catching up. By the end of the week, you're probably going to have more followers than her. And she tweeted about that. Has she taught you yet? Because this was a topic we talked about when Noah was pitching in his underwear. Has she taught you what a thirst trap is yet? Oh, geez. No, and I didn't want to challenge her about that because I did see that. I did see that. You know, I, I was very fortunate to get off to a fast start. I mean, I broke right out of the gate. And um, I think first 24 hours, I had like 20,000 followers. And, you know, it's leveling off now, which is to be expected, especially without baseball or any other forum to kind of promote it or just be on the air other than guest appearances here and there. So I saw what she tweeted out about her concerns. And we have our different constituencies. Everybody's got to be, you know, comfortable in their own skin. But the thirst trap thing, I'm, I'm not asking her because I don't know that she'll give me the right response if she's really trying to protect something. But I'll learn along the way. I'll figure it out for myself unless you want to fill me in. I mean, essentially, I'll just say it because I've met, I mentioned it. A thirst trap is kind of like a picture that's a little bit revealing. It's not like a nude picture. It's like a picture that's kind of revealing that will bring guys in and to slide. It's called sliding into your DMs. Oh, so boy. especially I'm during. Gonna, I'm going to show Jake. I'm going to show my age here for a minute. So what you're talking about willis no just like a picture like a, a picture where a girl looks really good and a guy might respond like wow you look great uh or you know or they'll slide in looking DM. for attention looking for attention looking for attention is what, what a thirst trap it's thirsting for attention a little bit and in a pandemic people are doing it especially when they're bored right now the only thing I would tweet out about, I mean, I might tweet out my high school graduation picture where I had hair pretty well down to my shoulders, although it was cut there to you that go. picture. And now I'm growing a beard of boredom. I've never grown a beard before. Now, listen to this. I'm Seriously, I'm 66 years old, okay? I have no problem admitting that. And most people who shave at 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning would have a thicker and better looking beard than I did by 5 o'clock that day than I do now after three weeks. I've had three weeks of growth and I look like some guy on the side of a turnip truck just, you know, looking for handouts. It's, it's terrible. When you had hair back in, you know, the 70s and 80s. I still got hair. I'm not one of those, you know, I'm not like some chrome dome. I got hair. More hair, I would say. I'm bald. More so hair. I, I know the no hair life, but when you did have more hair, uh, we have a bit of a connection. So I, I got the story, the full story from my mom. I've always known about it, and I've never gotten a chat with you, so I'm glad I could finally bring it up. So, from your mom? Yes. So he, here it is. <laughs> oh, this so, isn't going to end well, is it? No, it will. It will. It'll be fine. Because you, you got married in 87. So this was 1983. My mom went to get her car fixed at a Toyota auto repair shop in Flushing across from the Queen's Botanical Garden. Oh, I know. Yeah. 
I remember that. That was on, um, I think it was on Main Street. Yeah, I, I, I believe that's it. You both were getting your car fixed. My mom's car was a Toyota Celica. Uh, she was single at the time. You came over to her. You started talking. You asked for her number, and she gave it to you. Hey, what do you think, Diggy? Just like a player, huh? That's pretty good. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I was Too impressed. But here's the problem. So you called her. I think you were 29. She was 27. You ended up calling her weeks later. And essentially after that. Weeks? At, at, weeks? Yeah. She told me weeks. Ooh, so I had a deep bench back then. <laughs> <laughs> so so, at, so w- when you called her, apparently like a week or two after she met you, she started dating what would be my future dad. His name his name is Bob Brown, Robert Brown. He was next really? he was next to her when you called. So you asked her to go out sometime and she said she wanted to go out with you, but she told you she had just met someone she started seeing. Um and her name, let's see if you remember is Noelle Monahan is her maiden name. You know, I'm going to tell you something that you have to trust and believe. I do remember, I remember that whole thing. I remember your mom was not only very attractive but very sweet and I don't remember I honestly do i honestly couldn't do i believe i wrote her phone number on the back of one of the cards from the toyota place and i might have stuffed it in my wallet and there are a couple others in there i suppose but uh, I don't, you know i mean i was what was that what 1983 i was 29 or whatever you know new york i love that uh, i love that you remember that she'll be happy to hear that I you remember. noel you were very sweet and i think that i guess jake that I had something, at least peripherally, to do with your very existence. <laughs> if you guys, you know, if you called a week earlier or two weeks early and she wasn't with, you know, Bob Brown eventually, I'm either Jake Rose or I'm not even a fetus. So I don't know which one it is. Well, you better be thankful for what you are because if you inherited my genes, you'd be the worst athlete imaginable. <laughs> uh, you know, it's very frustrating. But anyway, I do remember, I honest to goodness remember your mom. Please tell her for me that she obviously did the right thing because you turned out fine and she's happily married, I assume, and um, all's well that ends well, right? Yeah, so they got married in 85, so they've been married. It'll be 35 years now. You got wow. married in 87. She also told me, which I didn't know about this, that after that, you apparently asked out her friend and she went out with you and her name was Jody. Do you remember a Jody? Jeez, that stuff's been known to happen too, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know what happens. You know, you make the first out of the inning, and then, all right, who's up next? Let's go. Yeah. Um, uh, her name was Jody. She wouldn't give me the last name because she was like, I want to respect her privacy, and she's, I guess, I'm happily sure Jody married. wouldn't want that known either. <laughs> yeah, but, um, you know, that part I don't remember. I don't remember talking. You know what? I might have remembered talking to your mom and having her, you know, politely blow me off. It's a lot. I, I once had somebody reject me for a date when I was about 19 because she said, and I quote, and this is true, uh, I can't, I've got to stay home and color my grandmother's hair. Mm. <laughs> wow. Nobody yeah, gets rough. rejected that creatively, but I do not I do not remember um, having more than a conversation or two after Toyota with your mom. So the Jody part of it, I have no recollection. I need more information. She'll be happy about that. I'm sure that you remembered her and not Jody. And she she said that if she wasn't dating what would be my dad, that she would have went on a date with you. So what could have been? I don't know what the date would have been in the 83, like rollerblading. I don't know where you guys went, but. Oh, give me more credit than that. Rollerblading? <laughs> I would have taken it a dinner at a nice restaurant. There you go. You kidding me? rollerblading that's what a 29 year old man does in living in new york and single see jake you lucked out because you're not Alyssa's brother now so you still have a shot <laughs> yeah i guess i gotta i guess i gotta send Alyssa a thirst trap apparently that, that's what has to happen <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, oh boy. <laughs> we are really branching out here, and it's all been very educational. <laughs> all right, back to the baseball. Here we go, Howie. I wanted Thank to you. know, I grew up, of course, a Mets fan. I got a chance to play for the team that I grew up rooting for. Um, you yourself also grew up as a Mets fan. Do you ever pinch yourself that you get a chance to call these games? Every day. You know, Nelson knows that. I'm not exaggerating. I go up to fantasy camp a couple of days each year when they're having what they call their bull session. And, you know, I'm surrounded by guys in some cases, especially the older ones, because, you know, I am, as I said, 66. So the 69 team in particular, and a little bit after that, I mean, those are my guys. Those are the ones that were my idols growing up. So for me, it, it doesn't matter if I'm doing something like that or just going to the ballpark for a midseason game that, um, you know, isn't necessarily one that carries huge significance. It's just there's not a day that goes by when I'm not in that booth and I don't think about the amount of good fortune that I've had to be there. And I have a picture in our booth, in the Mets radio booth, which is named for Bob Murphy. And I wanted this as soon as we got into City Field. It's a big framed photograph, ironically enough, taken in 1969, of Bob Murphy, Lindsey Nelson, and Ralph Kiner. Because when we're in the middle of a season that's going nowhere, or we're in the 14th inning, or the game is just dragging, and that's when you can start losing a little bit of your fastball, I just, I turn, and I look a little over my right shoulder at that picture, and I immediately recalibrate. Because seeing those three, and letting it just sink in, even for a split second, how incredibly fortunate, and more to the point proud that I am to be part of that lineage that's an adrenaline boost that's better than any you know cup of tea or five-hour energy drink yeah that's one of the things that you have to realize is that your opportunity is even more rare than mine's was uh, I look at it has only been 20,000 ball players in the world and you just look back at that photo at the guys who came the broadcasters who came before you so it's very elite company that you are in well what about and then, well let me Nelson let me throw it back to you then I mean you, you grew up in New York right so you know you know the culture, you know the surrounding, you knew the history of the ball club. The first time you stepped on the mound, and I believe your debut was at Shea Stadium, at least your New York debut, not at City Field, right? You were mm-hmm. at Shea, yes. Shea, right? So mm-hmm. when you stepped on, because I've got a story I'll tell you afterwards, but w- what kinds of things went through your mind when you were ready to deliver your first pitch at Shea Stadium as a Met? Well, as a Met, it was surreal. Like my body was doing warm-ups and going through the whole warm-up process, but I felt like my mind was kind of looking around the stands and taking in all these people are here watching me on this mound, the same mound that I you know, grew up watching Dwight Gooden pitch on and Ron Darling and all those guys. And then I you know, kind of spanned my view over to the upper deck and said, that's where I used to sit in those upper deck seats. And here I am now on the inside looking out. I remember that I, I tell the story how I got two strikes on the batter and everybody started clapping. And I was like, wait a minute, that's what you do when you're expecting, you know, this guy's gonna get struck out. I've got to strike this guy out. And it didn't happen the first time that for me, but the next time that it did happen for a brief moment, a very brief moment, I felt like I was as good as Dwight Gooden. I gave the fans what they wanted, that roar of the crowd, the the, the goosebumps that went through my body and knowing that I had my family and friends over in uh, Billy Wagner's box out in right field. Well, it, there's no better feeling in the world than that. It's like an out-of-body experience almost, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I can remember, I guess the well, the first time I ever emceed anything on the field for the Mets was in 99 at Shea, 30th anniversary of the 69 team. And they set me up at home plate for that. But in in 2006, we brought back the, the uh, 1986 team. 
for the 20th anniversary of that world championship. And they set the stage up and the podium on second base, right where second base is. And all I could think about as I was introducing the players, and this is why I chose one of the groups that I did in that um, nine box band Twitter question earlier today. All I could think of while I was standing at the podium at second base looking in towards home plate was, man, this is the exact view, because that's exactly where their stage was set up, that the Beatles had when they played Shea in 65 and 66. So here I am introducing all these great players, and I've got to stop myself from breaking into I'm Down or Babies in Black, <laughs> which would have been a bad idea, believe me. That, that's how profound that moment was for me you've called a lot of big moments Howie over these years and the 9-11 homer with Piazza obviously stands out when you I believe it was you and Fran Healy on the Fox Sports net days is there a top moment in all your time with the Mets that that you've called that really you just watch over and over again not so much that I watch it over and over but whenever it comes up especially if it's synced up to the radio audio I still get the goosebumps when I go back to Jerry's familia striking out Dexter Fowler for the final out of the National League Championship Series in 2015 because for a kid that grew up in the schoolyards of Bayside and would play sick ball and punch ball and slap ball or anything resembling baseball aside from just real little league or you know high school summer league baseball where I'd fool around and call my own game in the schoolyard while I was playing stickball for the word the Mets win the pennant to come out of my mouth into a live microphone in real time as a broadcaster for the Mets it still sends shivers down my spine when I think about it and if you listen very carefully as that call kind of goes through that initial the Mets win the pennant to its ultimate completion you can hear my voice almost break once or twice because that was a moment like no other because of its significance and I'm holding out that there's just one more of those those type moments to come, but you know, one bigger one, right? That's that's what I'm holding out hope for. Yeah, and uh, we hope that it happens this year. But this year is a mystery, man. Like, w- what do you see happening? Do you see this Arizona Florida plan working? Like, do you see that happening, or do you see no baseball in 2020? I, I can't bring myself to say no baseball in 2020. I just uh, we're all feeling the same void right now. We missed the game terribly. But the reality of the situation, as has been advanced by the doctors, is that they don't know when it's going to be safe to open things up, even under the control conditions they're talking about, either in Arizona completely or between the Grapefruit League teams of Florida and the Cactus League teams of Arizona. In my heart, I believe there's going to be some baseball in 2020. I hope at some point there are fans involved. At this point, as we speak in April, that seems almost too good to be true and probably too far off to even seem plausible. But we don't know how things are going to develop over the next four, six, eight weeks. And maybe we get to a point where, you know, they've got to start without fans, but they build up to where they can come back into the ballpark. I'm not a doctor, but I'm leaning on them. And as pessimistic as that thought might be right now about the possibility of playing baseball at all, never mind with fans, I'm holding out hope that it's going to happen. Well, I can tell you one thing. I would never want to face you in Battle of the Booth. Those, uh, episodes of you and Gary Cohen taking on the world uh, are pretty impressive with your plethora of knowledge that you guys have. I want to thank you for coming on with us and letting us into your world and welcome to Twitter and uh, letting us into your world as well and enjoy uh, all the things that are uh, come with uh, being on Twitter. Howie, thank you so much for spending some time with us. My pleasure, Jake. My pleasure, Nelson. And Jake, is it all right if I close by saying, hi, Noel. Nice to almost know you. Yeah, you can. <laughs> and I, I, I won't call you 
you dad, but I, I, I thought about it at one point, so it's, it's fine. <laughs> Can't afford it. Thank you. <laughs> and follow Howie on Twitter. Don't forget, Howie Rose 3 on Twitter. Go follow him. Get him to 25,000 followers. Uh, Howie, hopefully we talk to you later in the year when there is baseball. Appreciate it. I hope so. Thanks, guys. It's a double dose of phenomenal guests on Amazing But True this week. So let's chat now with a Mets legend, a key member of the 1986 World Series champion Mets, a four-time All-Star, an 85 NL Cy Young Award winner, a Rookie of the Year. He threw a no-hitter with the Yankees, won two more World Series in the Bronx. He's got 194 career wins. He's a Mets Hall of Famer. The list goes on and on. It's the great Dwight, a.k.a. Doc Gooden. You can follow Doc on Twitter at DocGooden16 and Instagram at DocGooden. Doc, welcome to Amazing But True, man. How you doing? Everything is great. Thank you guys for having me. Hope you guys are safe. Your comments are good. You know, I'm sure you're sitting quality times with all your loved ones but these are well thank you guys for having me and doc i spoke with you at the Wayback screening and figgy was not there he might have been taking someone else to ruth chris steakhouse who knows maybe he cheated and went to morton's or <laughs> del probably, frisco's but probably, yeah. he, he owes you two steak dinners um and now you came on the show so does that make it like three steak dinners what's the deal i make it three unless we bring you with us there should be two but he definitely owes me two but figgy, figgy's my guy so i'm sure he'll take care of this i was hoping to get a for the show, but I'd love to go with you guys. Oh, you will. And and Figgy, he also said that uh, you threw 65 at Fantasy Camp, and uh, on the next episode, <laughs> when we play that, you debunk <laughs> that Figgy, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's right. I mean, they called my curveballs to Uncle Charles, cousin Larry, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> I must admit, I watched him throwing the ball and he was getting up a little bit. He still could throw. He not. He still throws pretty well. I don't know about the break himself, but the fastball's got pretty good life, so it's pretty impressive. And yes, I was throwing 65, but you know, I'll be 56 this year, so just to justify it a little bit. So, listen, so I had to catch up to Doc eventually, right? So now that we're getting older, I can say, okay, now it might be a little bit better than Doc, but I got to play third base, our first fantasy camp together. So here he is, you know, he's opening up the pros versus the Joes, and he's going to pitch, and Ed Hearns is catching. I'm playing third base and I'm like, oh my God, Doc Gooden's opening this up. And I'm waiting for him to, you know, like do the whole reach back, the big mechanics, the high leg kick and, you know, fire strike in there. <laughs> it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that at all. So, <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm a little heavier. Well, you know, when I played, I was probably 200 pounds. I mean, you're talking 260, 265 now. All gut. So obviously the, the big leg kick is gone. That's out. You know. <laughs> that's your curve. That's that's the curve on you now. It's the gut. Getting around the gut is the actual curve that you have. Oh, man. <laughs> so that's so a little different now. And then for days afterwards, man, I couldn't lift my arm. I couldn't get out of bed. Hell, it was horrible. But it was fun. It was fun being on with you guys. Being all the guys that play with, that play games, and then they have their own. Fantasy guys coming in. It's a great two weeks. I really look forward to it. I love it. Have a good time. And Doc, you could also check out his his gear online at goodandbrand.com where you'll find a bunch of shirts and uh, hoodies and hats and all things that'll keep you warm when you're trapped inside during a quarantine right now. The 80s were a spicy time. And Ron Duguay hosts our Rangers podcast. And, you know, he always talks about memories of Studio 54. And, you know, Studio 54 didn't last. Was Studio 54 around in the 80s or no when you were playing? Unfortunately, yes. It was there. I had some fun nights, but 
and then to a lot of problems for me later on. 354, the China Club, those are my two spots. A place called Bentley's, those three spots, man. I mean, those are the places to go. Like Mondays, I think, was China Club. Wednesday was Bentley's, and Friday and Saturday was Studio 54. Do you have any memorable studio? Because Ron has told us stories. He's told me stories about Jack Nicholson meeting there, um, Bianca Jagger. I mean, the, the celebrities and A-list names go on. Do you have any recollections of nights with any, you know, A-list celebrities at that time and partying with them at oh, Studio 54? Yeah, a lot of fun. Well, my, my group was, and this is no joke, in 86, it was me. Just picture this. It was me, Strawberry, Mike Tyson, and Lawrence Taylor. Wow. All sitting in VIP, dude. <laughs> I mean, it was fun back then, and we all knew each other, and every Monday night we'd meet at China Club. And I'm sure it was all different types of celebrities in there at the time. And I mean, like, like Ronnie said, you name it. But that was our group that we just sat there and just had a good time. If you can remember it, then it wasn't that good of a time. That's what I got to say. <laughs> Oh, man. I mean, it was great. It was fun. Did you have moves? Like, was was Doc busting moves on the floor? Like, what were you listening to? What were you grooving to? And, like, I'm just picturing, like, what kind of moves you had in the 80s. Oh, oh, no, I was a Trevor dancer. But sometimes I got that curse juice in me, which is alcohol. And that thought was a decent (laughs) dancing, too. You know, you look like that and say, Phil. I was always dancing to a different song than the song that the DJ was playing, if you know what I mean. I had no rhythm at all. Still have no rhythm. <laughs> but my, my group back then was just, I like Ron DMC, I like Beastie Boys, um, Luther Vandross, Whitney Houston. Those were like my guys at that time. What became the 90s Studio 54? Like the 80s go by, you're still with the Mets in the early 90s, but Studio 4 is no more. What, where did the party go after that? I think in the 90s, they switched to Queens, um, a place called Bonte, right there um, off of, I think it was Bell Avenue, closer to the ballpark. It wasn't as big a popular place as in the city, but that was like our place where we went out to games. It was a good hangout for the players. You know, we just went there, the people that worked there, everybody was nice, the fans came there, just had a good time, good place to drink some wings, and just hang out. You know, just a little bit in the 90s. You know, I, got, I was married then, but still, you know, you had your moment. Absolutely. Doc, if you could go back and change, if old Doc could tell young Doc, one time, if you can go back to one moment that you think would have changed the course of your career, what would that be? Wow, a great question. Um, I would say just basically, I think, you know what, I think if I would have more fun, enjoy the game more and not worry about others' expectations, and then it became my expectations. And what I mean by that is, when I got drafted, I remember telling my dad, I just want to be healthy for a long time. I never thought about awards. I never thought about leading the league or anything. I just want to a long time, live my dream, and stay healthy. Unfortunately, after the year I had in 84 and 85, after that, the fun time went away only because I allowed it. And what I mean by that was the expectations came in where I remember a game in 86, I think it was, might have been Fernando or Hershey. I beat him 3 nothing at Shea. Uh, pitched my kick game, gave him three hits, but I had like four strikeouts. The first question was, what happened? You don't have four strikeouts. And from that point, every game I would pitch after that, I'm trying to get some strikeouts. I'm trying to pitch a good game. I'm trying to keep the team down, you know, on the three runs. And if I get to win 5-4, instead of enjoying the win and after to win, I was like, damn, I could get better. And so, I lost some of that fun that I had, some of that joy that I had, and really enjoyed my career that I had. Because not to brag or be cocky and being another spectrum, but I had a decent career, and especially up until that point, my career still was good. But I allowed what others would say to me into my head where I lost some of the fun. So what I would say was enjoy every moment that you pitch. I mean, it's a privilege to be out there pitching the big league because some people don't get the opportunity. I get to do it. Have a little bit of success. So I would tell myself to enjoy every moment that that's what happened. I really did enjoy it as much as I should have. I had moments where I did, but not as much as I should have after the 85 season. Doc, do you think that's what led to some of the problems off the field? Is that if you could have figured that out sooner and, and been able to keep those 
you know, everybody, all the externals, the, the way to quiet the externals of what happened off the field. Because that three hours that we have on the mound, nothing gets to us, right? We're in our zone, but it's afterwards. 100%. It definitely makes my problems because when I would get home to release all that stress, I would go home to Tampa, which wasn't a safe place for me, but I would go home to Tampa and I could release all that. All the kitchen in New York where you go places, you know, everybody wants autographs, wants pictures, and the media sends stuff. I'm, you know, not happy with myself, not happy with certain performances, and I missed parade. All this stuff was going on after the 86th season, so I started drinking more. Then I tried drugs. Unfortunately, I fell in love with the drugs, and then not knowing the time is becoming a problem. It's just my way of escape from reality, and it became a problem without me knowing the problem at the beginning. It got worse and worse, and then, you know, it, over the years, it just, you know, Get to the point where basically it's taking over my life and destroying my marriage, destroying my kids in life. So much stuff to go, but definitely 100% started from after the 86 season. Right there, that's when all everything just started right there because I was using alcohol and drugs to escape what was really going on inside of me. And having someone with my parents or someone that trusted to talk about my true feelings. And not to justify anything, I take total responsibility for all my downfalls, but for my family, like I'll say for my family since I was 17. So I just feel confident with them. I'm sure I could have went to my mom and talked, but they put me on a pedestal where if I say, yeah, I'm not doing good. It's oh, you're fine. It's okay. It's all right. You're okay. But it really wasn't okay. And then I started believing that everything was okay. He started justifying everything. And then the consequences started getting bigger and bigger with the suspensions, rehab, treatment, jail, prison, all the stuff started getting worse and worse. You don't take care of things, it will get worse because the same thing happened to me last summer. You have a relapse. Like I was good for seven years, but it doesn't matter. If you have a relapse, you don't get to start over. You start back from where you left off. So whether much you're using, how much you're drinking, or whatever, you start from that point and it gets worse and worse and worse. And unfortunately, I got, you know, arrested. What probably was the best thing to happen to me because I probably could have killed myself or killed someone else. So, you know, at the time I got arrested, I actually thanked the cops for, you know, doing their job because I could have died right there. Today I feel good. I feel healthy. Try to stay on top of this thing and try not to take nothing from it. Because it's addiction. You have that. You have that for life. Not every day is a struggle, but you can never let your guards down. Recovery has to come first because if it doesn't, I'm going to lose everything else that I put before it. I mean, I basically, the sad thing to say is it still bothers me. And I moved on. I got a good girlfriend now. But my first marriage, I basically divorced my wife and my five kids for drugs. But I guess kind of like your question else when you said, what would the young Dwight tell me? What would the older Dwight tell the younger Dwight at the time would be one of the things? You have problems. Being a man is asking for help. Admitting you have a problem. Admitting that you're struggling with something. At my time, being a man was, I could take care of myself. Like if I was struggling with my curveball, I was struggling with location, I knew how to fix that. I knew how to make the adjustments to do that because my dad taught me as a kid. I had male stomachs, which goes to so many things. But with addiction, you you can't do it by yourself. It's nothing you do by yourself. I couldn't fix that by myself. But in my mind, with the, you know, I, I could talk myself into anything, whether it's positive or negative. And I thought I could do this myself, or I don't want anybody to know what everybody already knew. My family knew what was going on. They knew I wasn't right, you know. And unfortunately, you know, you pay the price. As you're older, you pay the price. Sometimes it gets worse and worse. But a lot of people have lost their lives, doing a lot less than I've done. So I'm very blessed and fortunate to still be here. But even talk about this, and hopefully, just carry the message for the ones who are not here and the ones who are still out there suffering. Yeah, Doc. And you did a great job at the Wayback Screening of doing that and, you know, talking about the issues that you've been through. When when last summer comes up and the relapse does come up, what was going through your mind at that time? Like, how did it happen? And how, second part is, how do you avoid that happening again? Because we hate to see, you know, your name in the news for those kind of oh, reasons. Man, we we like hard. to see it for the good reasons. So what what was going on in that summer that, that it happened? And how do you avoid it happening again? Yeah, it was, it was horrible, horrible times. And, you know, what happened was initially, and, and again, I'm not justifying anything. I take full responsibility, but to me, what happened was three years ago, my mom passed, but 
before she passed, she had like a, you know, massive heart attack, a triple bypass, and because of her health, heart problems and stuff. She hung around for another year or two, but just watching her deteriorate, because like depression is one of my things, so I take medicine for depression, and a lot of it came in time, but during that time, I got down to like 175 pounds. Um, and that was just through, I love to eat. And now, you know, I love to eat. I, I, I had no appetite. I just basically, one first time I came, I was giving up because of my mom. I was like, damn, I can't believe this happened because you know your parents are probably going to go before you. But in my mind, my mom was like, like well, my mom's going to live forever. And she did everything for everybody, not just me, but in the neighborhood. So I never pictured my mom being in that position. But, you know, she didn't can. She didn't know where I was someplace. And it's going on. Watching her trade like that for two years and not really talking about it, telling somebody about it. Because I was in therapy at the time, but every time an easy thing to say was, how are you doing today? Well, I'm fine. What's going on? Oh, I'm going to go down, but I'm going to go down. I'm fine. I still tell them how I really feel. I stopped taking my medicine, and once I stopped taking my medicine for the depression, it was just a matter of time before the relapse occurred. Um, a lot of times in addiction, the relapse starts before you pick up the drug or you pick up the drink. It already started in your mind because it's changed. You're not going to meetings, you're not going to sponsor. In my case, I wasn't taking my medicine. So it's just a matter of time. And I think Watching my mom go through all that, it started, and then that last summer, my mom passed away. I felt better, but I still never really dealt with it. And with me, my my problem was like a two-headed sword. If things are going real, real bad, that could be danger. But on the flip side, when things are going real, real good, that could be danger also because I'll get to a point where I get too complacent or I get comfortable, and I'll stop doing the things that got me to that point. So last summer, you know, I'm riding around. And stuff, and I start having a drink. I'm going to have a drink. I'm going to just go home. But no, I should get a drink. I should call somebody and say, yeah, I should have a drink. Even though, you know, the time had seven years, but it doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that one day in recovery. So I get the drink. Next thing you know, one more drink. Get another drink. Now, all bets are off. I'm like, wow. I wonder how I feel to get high again. Maybe I'll do it differently. So I get a little bit and go home. It don't happen that way. You go get it. Next thing you know, you have three days running around. Unfortunately, cops pulled me over, which I said it was a blessing in disguise that it happened that way. It was sad that it happened. Once that happened, now the media can hold to it. The media outside my house. I mean, they're all over the place. They bring up not just what happened last summer, but they go all the way back to 87. You got rid of all that. And then you start feeling real bad. I remember talking to a writer and just telling him, yeah, I screwed up right now. I'm boss. I don't trust myself. I'm just being honest. And then I got kids. I got like, five of my kids are adults and they have a 10 and 15 year old. They have six grandkids. But some of my grandkids are old enough to understand. So now they're questioning you. You got to live. You know, I told them what happened. I was like, in the embarrassment, the shame, the guilt, the selfishness, all that stuff played a part. And now, I'm like, well, that's not right. And then, you know, the case is still open. So some of them I can't really get into the second part. But to try to say, lean to before the second time we got picked up, um, I can't really touch that because that's still open. Um, just wait for the court to break up the good case. But to tell you what it took me was I ended up at Hikersack. Psychiatric ward for nine days. First time in there, I'm like, man, I, what I'm doing here? I don't belong here. I thought about it, yes, no, no, I do belong here. This is where I belong because the life I was living and where I was handed by two layers and the cops had to put me over could have been worse than being in the psych ward. I was in there for nine days and then I went to um, High Focus Mental Health Institution for 17 weeks and that's what helped me get back on track. The thing that took me to that point after years was just letting my guard down and not telling somebody how I'm truly feeling, no matter how they judge you, how they look at you or whatever, but just being open and honest and just saying, this is how I feel, this is what's going on, I need help. Before, before you pick up the drug or before you pick up the drink. But once I pick up the drink or the drug, then just off to the races. And when you talk drug, I mean, you're talking cocaine or heart, like, do you smoke weed or is that is that part of the drugs or are you just talking cocaine and other stuff? No, it's cocaine and alcohol. Um, I smoke weed sometimes back in the day just to kind of come down. But weed was never my thing. Even in high school or whatever, it always gave me a headache, made me hungry or sleepy. Unfortunately, the first time I tried cocaine um, in 86, it, I mean, I, in my mind, it was like, wow, wait a second, this is how I want to feel all the time. But it was a false 
filament. And that's what it was. It's in a methylated brain that just fits on the field, but it's, it's false. And then when I first did it, it was a problem right away, but not me knowing it. It definitely was a problem, but I was addicted right away. Well, I didn't know it. You know, one of the things we talk about is that you had a Hall of Fame career, uh, beginning to your career, a Hall of Fame track that you were on that no one had really seen before. Uh, the numbers that you were able to put up as a teenager and young 20-year-old were second to none. Looking back now, the workload that you had, trying to steer it now to the baseball side of things, the workload that you had at such a young age, um, you look at pitchers nowadays, how short they're being pulled and you know they're only trying to get less than 200 innings could you see yourself being that kind of pitcher in today's game i, I couldn't do it it'd be tough and like you say like i guess we're brought from different eras where when we took them out our goal was to go nine innings at worst at worst will be seven innings or eight you know you want to get it to the setup man and the closer you didn't want the other guys coming again i mean that was your goal yeah guys sometimes we get if david took them out fifth innings train words we get into it you get pissed but pitch counts really when a big thing then if you felt good you want to pitch 85 again i'm the blue swarm on two i had 16 complete games and i had i think four games where i pitched nine nine shell innings but i got another season that same year that was my thing i felt great and now with the 100 pitch, pitch count, I mean, it's a big difference between 100 pitches in three innings or 100 pitches in seven innings. And then, like you say, pitches are only going five innings, six innings. And then it doesn't matter how to pitch. As soon as they go out for a fifth inning, they're getting the bullpen up. I'm glad I was in the area that I was in, the pitch low run, because as a pitcher, you want to be out there performing. You only get the pitch once every fifth day. That's your day. You want to be the man. The ball's in your hand. That's the only position where you get the WL besides your name or besides the team. You also get that too. And that's something, you know, it was like a challenge and you want to be out there. Today's game, I wish they would change that back. A couple of things they would do too. That's one, especially the pitchers, because even at the end of the year, the bullpens are out. And I think part of the reason why now you see the postseason where these guys are using starters in the bullpen is because the bullpens were out and they went them out, bring them all these innings. And that's one thing I would say, I, I like to go back to the way it was. You got people like the Bronx, especially. I mean, this guy breathes through five, six innings and then they, they're taking him out, you know, when he can't go long, especially in the middle of summer. April, I understand. September, I understand. But those middle months, I mean, you got pitch. I'm sorry. Talking about all the things that you've been to and having an opportunity to to help others, have you ever had a chance to mentor Matt Harvey about things on and off the field? It's funny. I reached out to him like, um, through the Richard fan bars, um, Steve Knapp and Steve Corner, to see what he was doing, see if he's still on the pitch, just to kind of talk to him about whatever. Because whatever he's going through, I've been there. I mean, I've had my issues off the field, obviously. I've had success on the field. I've had my downfalls on the field. I've been traded. I've been, I've been through everything a player could be through. And I just want to be there for him as a friend, number one, to make sure he's healthy. That's number one. And number two, to help him as a, you know, ex player and as a fan, to help him try to get back on track. I would love to do that. I know um, well, a couple years ago, I think we missed a night game. I had talked to Jeff Wilpon, and he talked to me when we talked to Harvey, but we never got the opportunity to speak. Um, I spent time with Harvey before, but we never actually, we talked a little bit about different things about baseball, but we never got into a real deep conversation about pitching, preparation, the mental approach. We never had the opportunity, but I would have loved to have talked to him. I still like to talk to him, but I never had the opportunity. Yeah, I think that would have been tremendous for him, and I still think that's uh, something that could very well help him. So if anybody who knows him, you're a great person to reach out to. Listen, Doc, I want to thank Thank you from the bottom of my heart as a former player in the big leagues for being so open and honest about the pressures and pitfalls that come into our lives. And this was a tremendous look inside the life of Doc Gooden in a way that not a lot of people can get to. I appreciate it, man. Thank you guys for having me. 
and other things. I've always been a fan. You, you have knowledge too, man. You can do whatever you want in the game. I'm sure getting out the penalty, I'm just saying that it was smoke. But more important, I appreciate it more than anything, just the fact that we're friends and you're a good guy. Uh, you know you always have a spot with us, brother. Yeah, Doc, appreciate the time. Let's hope we could talk again when there's a season. Let's pray we get baseball. No, no matter if you play in Wyoming, Arizona, on another planet, on Mars, let's hope we get baseball and we could talk to you, uh, talk some Mets baseball. Oh, definitely. You guys, anytime, man, let me know. You guys are doing a good job. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I wish you guys nothing but success and all the best. And that is a wrap for episode six of Amazing But True, our New York Mets podcast from the New York Post. Thanks to you, Jake, for producing the show. Thanks to Ken Davidoff, Gemini Keys, Howie Rose, and Doc Gooden for joining us. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're using Apple, please rate us five stars and write a nice review. Figgy, we dedicate this show to Anthony Causey and send our condolences and thoughts and prayers to his wife, Romina, his son, John, his daughter, Mia, and the rest of his family. Stay safe, everyone. Talk to you all next week.